that way of thinking all came down to, in terms for me, was this lack of love and appreciation for myself. And so that was driving all my behaviours, all my thought patterns, all my language, all the ways I was acting, reacting. And then when I realised that, it gave me the springboard to move forward. Before we get into today's episode, we have a word from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They will never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help unlock their growth through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development programs, or speaking engagements. We create foundational people over profit environments, the kinds where productivity and innovation soar, culture, inclusion, and equity sit at the heart of operations. Are you ready to step out of the box and take your organization to the next level? Contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have uh, the pleasure of having a conversation with the ex footballer Martin Pemberton who's played for a number of different teams over the years which we're going to get into and now he does a lot of work in the I guess in the health well-being and consultancy mental health space obviously he's a speaker and when you think about a football player and you think about health and well-being I'm sure a lot of times you don't naturally put those two together but you're going to learn a bit more about how that journey came about for Martin and how are you doing sir? I'm very well sure thank you for having me sir. Pleasure to meet you. Uh, we just had a little chat now. And <laughs> we did. I think we're going to have a we're going to have a good, have a good time. And we're going to get a lot of things out there for people to kind of think about because that's what we're about. Is a, I suppose it's that awareness, right? And that that self awareness is most important for people to to be able to change themselves. And as you said earlier in the conversation, lead themselves first, and then that actually helps to lead on to rub, rubs off on other people, and then they start to change as well. So we can't make people do things. We've got to kind of show them it's like the old saying you can lead a, a horse to water but you you can't make it, make it drink yeah. but if you show it that you're drinking there then they'll probably come and do that do that anyway you know indeed and I always like to go back to the, the origin story and you how did you get into football well so a lot of times you hear people say he always had a ball at his feet you know he, he, he never he always was playing with the football that, that I don't really remember that it wasn't really something that I, I remember playing with cars and action men and all those other, other things back in the day before screens came, came along right but I think then my first experience of football was just I think my mum took me to play uh, to train somewhere and I, I, I just I enjoyed it it was this weird feeling that I tried to explain to people of just felt very natural very free it was one of those times when you just kind of forget everything. There was a real like love and, and uh, passion for it. So yeah, and uh, started playing in my Sunday league team. And my, my dad at the time was working uh, nights, so he never used to come. And my mum had said to my dad, "Oh, he's pretty good, you know." But my dad was like, just his, his mum. <laughs> what does she? she, she 
course he's going to say he's good. <laughs> it's, his, it's his mum. So anyway, he, he finally came along and, and watched me play, and he was and then he was like, oh, actually, he's quite good. There's something there. And so he just developed from there, and then played for various teams. And then my dad ended up being the manager of our Sunday team, which oh, some wow. people might think is good because they might think that you might play every week, but there's a pressure there that you've then got to perform as the, the manager's son because if not, you can get accused of nepotism and all kinds of things. And also, you, you know, my dad's been kind of probably the not the harshest critic. I don't mean like that. He was really kind of drove critical. But mm. He drove me and expected. So if I didn't score a certain amount of goals in a game, he'd be asking me <laughs> what went wrong <laughs> today and that kind of thing. But it was brilliant to be involved in terms of our whole family. Uh, got to kind of do that as a joint venture. And then it just went from there. Played with my friends. Absolutely loved it. Played for school teams. But then, of course, if you're good playing in a certain year group, then the teachers want you to come and play for the the year above because there's a chance that they might start winning something. And so then you start attracting attention and it kind of, it goes from there. Then you play for the City Boys team. And so I'm from Bradford originally. And so I ended up playing for the Bradford City Boys. But it was at that point at 11, actually, when I fractured my back in a game. I got a stress fracture, but I didn't know it at the time. Somebody challenged me from behind, clattered into me and I went down and my back was really sore. But for three years... We just thought it was muscle spasms, you know, growing pains. That's what the doctors thought. And, and in actual actuality, I had a, a stress fracture in my back that I played for three years on and off. So, like, I'd play for a few weeks, then I'd get to the end of the game, couldn't even take my boots off because I couldn't even bend over, uh, have a week or two off, and then play again. We did that. And it was only when went to the Lillyshaw National Football School. So I got down to the final trials of that to get in. And I mean, that was an experience as well that when I say to people about you play for your Sunday side in your school and then you sit your boys team and then you play for your regionals and then you go down to Lillyshaw and you're starting to mix with the, the best players in the country. And there's a bit of a doubt that goes through your head like there is for most of us with do I deserve to be here and can I cut it with the best players? But once you get on the pitch and you, you actually get the confidence, you go, oh, yeah, I, I am good enough, you know. Once you get down to the last few in the, in the Lillyshaw trials, you have to have a medical and things like that to see, you know, how you, how you are. It was at that moment when we found out a stress fracture. So bye-bye Lillyshaw. And I had to have a year's complete rest except for swimming. So there was no PE, no games lessons at school, which I absolutely loved as well. And I just had a year where I wasn't allowed to do anything. And for someone who was so active, that was a pretty tough time. But what I do say to people also, it allowed me to experience things as a 14, 15-year-old that could have derailed me later on had I not experienced them in that time when it was all right to do it. Like, you know, going out and hanging out on the street corners with friends and doing all those other things that teenagers do. I got to do it in that year. So when I came back to football, I knew that that wasn't what I wanted. So I was ready and refocused to go again. Was that even prior to that was their dedication that because you're in sports, you couldn't go out, you couldn't do none of that. It was just football, 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 football. Yeah, we. I mean, just it's, it's an obsession. We used to get up and play, go to school early to play football before school. <laughs> There'd be like 30 lads would meet up before school at eight o'clock just to play football. Then we'd play at break time, lunch time, after school, have your tea go back out and play and then the, then there's training and you, you, while you're doing that and you love it so much you don't realise that that's your practice that's where you're putting in your 10,000 hours etc to become really good at the, that thing that you that you want to do so there is a dedication but it's kind of it wasn't a sacrifice because that was what I wanted to do and I was so clear on that that I couldn't explain to people 
why I wanted to be a footballer or how I knew I was going to be. There was just this silent knowing that it was going to happen. I couldn't foresee any way that it wouldn't happen. Now, whether that's naivety or of youth, I do not know because obviously the stats of becoming a pro footballer are, are not great. But I never for one second, even when I had my injury, I always thought, oh, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be here. Rest. Back, I'll heal up. I'll come back and I'll, I'll still go and make it. So, but I can't to this day explain to people where that knowing came from. I mean, I, I remember... You know when you go to the careers officer as well, and it's like, what what do you want to do when you leave school? And you say, oh, I'm going to be a professor of football. <laughs> They're like, yeah, right. And he looks, he's like, he's like, yeah, right. You you might want to become a little bit more realistic. But I actually got up and walked out of the meeting because I said, well, that's what I'm doing. And so, I, yeah, I walked out because I was like offended that he didn't believe I I could could do it because I was like. I'm totally doing it but again I don't know whether that was naivete or what but there was just uh, I just knew it because I loved it so much I couldn't see myself doing anything else so you had no plan B worse than it's, it's football and I'm gonna make it desert yeah I mean I still you know worked at school on mm. you know my subjects because I say to people all the time that's still important you know to to work on your academic studies there was nothing lit me up like playing football that feeling of complete kind of I call it no mind there's, there's no thinking it's just all instinct and you, you know you're in that zone and there's just a love of it that is unless you've experienced that with something else it's hard to explain to people what that feeling is like of playing on a playing on the pitch you know it's just something that you love doing so much you would do it all the time if you could what was that comeback like for you after after a year off um it was uh, yeah a little bit i suppose there's a tiny concern because you think well what's my back going to be like but then and again can i i've been a year out of the rest of the players progressed have i been left behind can i still do it and so but again once you get back in there you see that your levels you feel you get confident from that then and then you proceed onwards and then that was from 14 yeah so 14 to 15 year out and then 15 to 16 final year of GCSEs and then offered a, a YTS scheme youth training scheme that a lot of people won't even know what they are nowadays uh, old and athletic so they were the club that I signed schoolboy forms at 14 went to their centre of excellence and then was given a two year apprenticeship at 16 so started in July 1992 so finished my GCSEs June 92, July 92, gone. So gone from living at home to living at digs and then you're in a football club where the demands are very high and it's quite a, a sharp learning curve to go from being at home on kind of easy street and doing your GCSEs to then being in a football club where people are screaming and shouting at you to do this, do that. You know, you physically it's demanding as well. You've moved away from home as well. It was quite an experience, but... Even in those two years, even though we had jobs to do and boots to clean and picking up kit off the floor and bringing pots of tea and basically being a, a skivvy for people, but <laughs> it's part of the process to learn and respect your ascension to becoming a footballer. And it's like paying your dues in, in a way. Now, you probably say that some of it probably went too far back in those days because, again, there was no line, but there's an element that I feel is probably where we need to be put in certain situations to be stressed to a degree to then expand and, and, and kind of grow. So I know that that time for me, even though it was challenging and difficult, when I speak to some of the lads now, we probably had the best time that we've ever had because we, there was 12 of us in it together, a little bit of camaraderie, 
you're sharing the, the load, so to speak, but you're, you're learning football and, and doing what you love as well. So that was a really, really interesting and uh, educational kind of two years. You grow up a lot in a two-year spell because you go from being a boy and, and what's expected of you as a boy to very quickly people expect you to produce what you would consider a, a man to be able to be, produce, you know. So it sounds like it was in that period of time in particular, it's the mental side of things that, they were really working on inside of you to help you grow that side. I mean, the physical you already had and you're working on that regular basis, but the mental side, especially at that age is like, okay, you're going to do a lot of menial tasks, which eradicate as much as possible the ego that can come about because I'm a footballer now I've made it. So like, no, we're going to bring you all the way down. And I can't, honestly speaking, I'm thinking about it. The only thing that comes to mind is the different things I've seen on TV when it talked about YTS kids back in the day and how hard and bad it really was. So listening to you talk about you going in there was the best time of your life. I'm like, wow, that's a complete different contrast. Yeah, because as I said, there were a lot of challenging times, you know, and there was a, probably a lot of fear-based times. Like we say, sometimes you have to take a pot of tea into the first team dressing room. And so that in itself was an experience because... You knew if that pot of tea wasn't up to standard, <laughs> they wouldn't politely say to you, excuse me, Martin, can you take that pot of tea away <laughs> and get us another one? <laughs> it was usually there'd be a hot cup of tea getting thrown at you and, wow. and being told to go and do it again. Now, that's what I'm saying, that the culture's changing. I'm not saying that that wouldn't be acceptable. It probably never was then. But there was a line where even though that happened, you understood that you had to potentially maybe improve in what you were doing. I wouldn't recommend that and that works for everybody because obviously the fallout of that can not be great as well. But there's a, I understand an element of it to get you to have a standard, have a standard for yourself. And like you said, eradicate that ego from your mindset so that you can concentrate and, and learn your trade because, you know, while you're picking up sweaty underpants off the floor and cleaning up, all kinds of stuff and looking after someone and and if you're not doing that to a high standard there was a consequence for that and so some people might go that's quite harsh but actually in, in reality there was a, a good learning process to go through because in some instances you wouldn't make those mistakes again you'd, you'd learn from the experience and I don't mean physically like anything would happen to you anyone would put their hands on you but for example if you were packing the football skip for away games and you forgot a piece of uh, your professional's kit like your, sh your shin pads or whatever it didn't go in the skip there'd be a, a physical kind of consequence to that where you'd have to go on the rowing machine and you'd have to try and do 3,000 metres in 12 minutes and if you didn't do it they gave you a little rest and then you had to do it again but you didn't forget to put those things in the skip ever again so while people will go, wow, that's a little bit harsh mm. actually there was a steep learning curve to be focused on what you needed to do and be organized in, in looking after your professional. Did all 12 of you make it through or did anyone quit? No, everyone got to the end, but they only take on so many people who were there at the level that they thought were good enough. So there was four of us that came through and that, that kind of after that 12, which was probably quite high because when we had a chat before starting, the PFA come in and have a chance and there'll only be probably two of you will make it out of the 12. But I remember me and my friend, who he also played football, we, we kind of looked at each other and, and thought, what is everyone else going to do? Because those two spots are ours. Awesome. Like, do you know when you speak? You know when you've got a... He's like, he's my best mate. You know when you look at your friend and you know what they're thinking and you're thinking the same? And we were like, it's only two spots. Like, well, those spots are taken. <laughs>
But again, I, I want to convey it wasn't. It's not because we thought we were better than other people. We just had this belief in our no, own ability. Yeah. If that makes sense, yeah. Because I know that can sometimes people can go. Well, that's a, a bit arrogant. I, it wasn't because we never thought we were better people than anyone else. We just had a certain way of playing football that we felt maybe was at a different level to people. And that's why I often say to people now when I speak or go and work with people, is it just because you're good at something doesn't mean that you're better than someone. Mm. That's really important for people to, to remember. And like you said with the ego, that's where the ego can drag you to a place where if you think you're good at something or you're in a higher position or you've got letters after your name, whatever it is externally, makes you somehow above someone else. That grounding came from my dad because any time I would get above my station, you know, he's a, he's a West Indian man, so you, there was no, you're coming back down, you know, and so that was something that he instilled in me from an early age as well, you know, so I, that's why I say it. And on the flip side, I also say to people, if you think you're less than someone based on the skills you've got, the role you're in, that's also your ego as well because nobody's better than you either as a person, right? And so this is, I think these are messages that are really important for people to understand because if we can do this, we can create those conversations that we spoke about before because nobody's coming from that place of ego thinking they're either better than or worse than someone else. We're just different. When you think about ego and then you scale out your, your career and obviously move from older, you play for the different teams all the way throughout. You're going out week in, week out. You've got thousands of people cheering you on. What was that feeling like and trying to balance the ego and that crowd adulation that happens? Yeah, well, I think that that's the, that's the drug, right? In terms of performance sports and the feeling that you get is indescribable of going onto a, a football pitch. But then, as I'll come on to later after my journey, that's why now I think speaking on stage is not a problem for me and something that I slipped into quite naturally because there's many elements that are the, the same in terms of the football pitch is a stage and so the stage speaking in front of people is, is a very similar environment. So it's one that I was used to, so it's something that never really bothered me. But from an egotistical point of view, it's easy to get swept along with, again, your skill set as a person and then your identity with that skill set as to who you are and your level as a person based on you being able to kick a football around well or not. And that's the way you hopefully are able to separate. Because the other side of the coin is, if you're not doing so well, it can be a lonely place to be as well on the football pitch, right? So, you know, if you're not doing well and, and then people have that kind of, they feel they've got the right to say whatever, whatever they are. So when I do talks as well and I do speak about football, because the perception many times for people is that footballers have just got this wonderful life and it's all dreamy for them and they've got no issues and, and maybe shouldn't have any issues. And I kind of tried to paint the picture about the potential the 10 year work you've put in to get to that point where you become a professional. Then you're, com you're always in competition with somebody. Like, so you, you're competing to get in the team. Then you're competing to stay in the team. Then you're competing against 11 other people who are probably as good or at the same level as you, so it's not that easy to beat them in a football match. Then you've got people who've paid for the privilege to come in to watch, but with that privilege, they believe they can say whatever they want to you, and then you have to just accept and take that while still trying to perform your job to a high level while someone's trying to stop you do your job. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then someone who's never played the game or done your job 
to the level you've done it at, gives you a rating out of 10 and puts it in a national newspaper for everybody to see, right? So everybody knows whether you've had a bad day at the office or not, right? And so when I put that into the whole picture for people, you start to have a different understanding of potential pressure just from performance and then what that might be like to manage that. And, and for the footballers nowadays, certainly the top, the top players, I can't imagine it in terms of the lack of freedom that they've got to go where they potentially might want to go with that, especially now with cameras on phones and there's nowhere they can go where their freedoms are impinged on, whether they want them to or not. And some people say, well, that's what they, you know, they get money for and that, but at what price do, would we all give up our freedom? Most of these players, girls and boys, just played that game because they loved it and you, you don't know that that's what's going to potentially come with it where you're a commodity and then people think they've got a piece of you and are allowed to speak to you in any way they want yet you can't do anything back so think of Cantona when he did do something back <laughs> yeah yeah. and most players in the country at that time were secretly probably celebrating what he did because he did what probably most players have wanted to do their entire life and I certainly think of like think of the black players and in, in some of the slurs that they've endured I've had that as well you can understand why he snapped because it takes a lot of self-control to not and then still do your job to the best of your ability and so that's why I say to people if you can put yourself in that picture in that position you might have a different perception of footballers in terms of I'm not going to say you've got to love them and, and feel like sorry for them but you might have an understanding which then changes the way that you see them and then the situation How did you cope with I'm going to call the the criticism because, like you said, you got criticism from thousands of people day in day out. You might have criticisms if you're put on blast in a national newspaper, for example. Then you've now got on the on the lower levels your managers. So you got your managers there who go criticize you. You got your players around you who are going to criticize you if things are not are not going well. How do you deal with that constantly? Because you're human. You learn to put up a, a shield or you put your armour up, right? And that's where potentially the ego can come in as a useful tool because then it can grow to protect you a little bit. I always say my ego is kind of like a, a bouncer or a protector, like a, you know, personal bodyguard. Now, he will protect me when I need it, but he hasn't got the skills to be at the front of house, so probably won't negotiate very well, won't speak very nicely to people, but he'll get the job done if I need him to come in and do it. But the problem can be when the ego then takes control and is at the front of house, as I say. So for me, it's always been able to balance that and be like, I need that part of me to get this bit done, but you can't be in control because when you're in control, then life can tend to go in a way that maybe you, you don't want to. But that's because the ego inside of me doesn't have those skills or capabilities. Very good at some things, but not what I need it to do for me to go through a life where I want it to be peaceful and, and, and calm and happy. Because we all have it, don't we, when that, you feel it when you it, it, you feel your blood boil or somebody, somebody says something, it's there ready to, to strike or to defend or to make someone else wrong and tell someone what you think of them and put them in the place, right? And it's that, it's being able to manage that to the best of your ability, but only through practice, I think is that you are able to kind of, but you have to be able to see it and understand it as well. And many people don't, so then it can become a real issue. But that's why I would say that you raise your armour because you have to, because imagine 
people, you're constantly getting criticised, aren't you? So it's being able to embrace that and then take that forward. But again, in football, I think they're learning this now. All players are different. When I played, it was very much one way of every player got treated the same in terms of you get hammered if you weren't doing well. Whereas now, we're starting to become more aware that it's like one of the sayings we used to have in football is know your players in terms of what players could and couldn't do on the pitch. But also, I think it's now know your players. What are those human beings like? How do you get the best out of them? Will giving them a, you know, a bollocking, gonna, is that really going to get the best out of that person? Some people drive off it, right? Because they want to prove people wrong, but others need a little bit of an arm round them. They need a conversation. They need direction. And so I think hopefully in football that that's what's going to start to happen more and more. And so that then comes down to man management and being aware of people. But I think football's still catching up with that because the old methods of it's high pressure situation. People might say, well, we don't have time for that. We've got to get people. If you're not going to get the best out of someone because they don't perform, and I'm sure you've seen that in all the businesses that you go into as well, it's something that we've got to be aware of. How can we ask or get people to perform to a high level without doing it in a way that's going to be detrimental to, to them, which effectively means they're not going to perform anyway, are they? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the hardest things is getting people to perform at a high level and not letting the the pressure performing at a high level get the best of them. Because when that happens, that can go on a two ways. Sometimes it can go really, really well and it drives someone, but then it drives them too much and it can lead to breakdown and all that kind of stuff. And there are times when that pressure becomes too much for that person. They don't end up performing at all. And I can only imagine, like you said, as, as a football player, obviously that pressure is heightened because you're in the public domain. Some in the case of, oh, I can hide behind the screen or it's just a couple of people that know what I'm doing. There's, there's thousands of people there. But I think there's an added thing that comes to mind as you were talking was there's also something around identity. For you, for example, when from when you were young, I want to be a football player. I'm going to be a football player. I am a football player. And then you're being told, yes, you're a football player, but you're a crap football player. That identity challenges something that's deep inside of you that people don't necessarily think about when they're making the comments and they're making their statements. And so because you're attached to that identity, any criticism of your performance, unlike for a lot of people, we take it personally because we've attached our what we do to who we are. And so as a footballer, I totally did that. So then when you do that for a long period of time, what do you do when that comes to a, an end? Now, as a footballer, you know that your career is going to come to an end and you know that it could come to an end at any time, you know, but you don't go out there thinking I could be injured and do all kinds of things. Because I mean, even for me over my career, I had another two back operations in my time. So there's, there's coming back from injuries, dislocated shoulder. I've had a couple of knee operations. I actually damaged my eye as well. I got clawed in the eye and I went blind for about three hours in one eye. That was a bit scary, right? So, Wait, how did, you know, how did that happen? Uh, I just in a game went up for a header and someone put their arm out and, and he must have had his hand open and he went like that to kind of push me out of the way and he clawed me in my eye and then all my, my eye just kind of went over, you know, it went white, it just, the film came over my eye and I was in the physical room with the doctor and I'm, I'm sat there thinking, I can't see. Like, and you think, oh, I'll blink a few times and it'll be all right. And then I'm like, I can't sit. Like, this might be me blind for <laughs> in one eye forever. Fortunately, that didn't happen. So there's even the process of 
continually coming back from injuries. Because once you're injured as well, you're then separate from the rest of the team. So there's that element that comes into it. So for mentally, for players, hopefully this is what they're starting to realise more. You've now injured. You know, you're not of any real use to anyone either, right? Because <laughs> you, you can't do your job. So you're incapacitated. You've got to work your way back from injury. You don't really see the rest of the lads that much because you're training, doing stuff with the physio. So there's also that part of it. So there's that fear of missing out as well. There's the battle with yourself to come back from injury. Again, what am I going to be like when I come back? First, I've got to get fit. Then what happens when I come back? So it's only when I've looked back at the end of my career and I thought, actually, you've been through quite a few different scenarios where you've had to maybe be resilient or you've had to you know, come back from injury. There was a time when I a lot of uncertainty as well. I was on a month-to-month contract at one club for a while and I got injured. I just signed for a month. So... But I got injured at the start of that month. So I thought, well, nothing's changed. You know, I've been injured. I'll get fit. I'll go in. I'll get another month. But I went in to see the manager. He said, no, we're we're letting you go. So I was then out of football. So that dream that you talked about, that thing, that identity, at that moment in time came all crashing down. So then you're like, well, what's going to happen? So I basically just went away and hid for a good month. I went out a lot. It consumed a lot of alcohol. uh, trying to, I didn't read the papers, I didn't want to know about football or anything. So, but that was all, of course, just all the strategy to protect my, myself from the hurt. There was embarrassment, I think, as well in that. When I look back now, you're no longer the footballer. What are you going to be? You know, that ego, you're going to be just like everybody else, right? Because people react differently to when you tell them what you do. There's all that kind of stuff. And then I started playing non-league football. Someone persuaded me to start playing. And then I just, I did a, a role as a, security officer down at a, a benefits agency in Bradford. Did that for a year, played semi-pro football, got the confidence back and then moved clubs and then the, the manager at that club, who I'll be forever grateful to, got me a trial uh, at Mansfield, who were back in the football league. And I went for a trial there and I did. Re- I had a two-week trial, did really well, got injured after my first week. So all the thoughts of injury, I'm like, oh, but the manager came to me. So this is where I talk about good communication and understanding people. The manager at the time, Mansfield just came to me and said, listen, I've seen enough of you in the first week. I'm going to sign you. So the relief then of, I've got a year's contract now. So then you, you play for a year and then got another year after that. And again, playing in confidence. And we won a promotion that year in 2002 with Mansfield from League Two to League One. That was probably the, the best season I've ever had in terms of enjoyment with a great group of players. We were loads of just really good mates. We were playing a great standard of football for, for that league and it was really enjoyable and we got promoted and then I got a move to Stockport then in 2002 with Carlton Palmer which was an experience because Carlton's a, a character he's definitely unique and that was that was amazing as well you know and then got to go play with those players and then I got a, my second back injury and then it kind of I ended up having to retire from pro football in 2005 but then I played a little bit more semi-pro for a few years and I got to finish my career with like my best mate who I mentioned from Oldham at the start. We got to play football and, and finish playing together. So I retired in 2007 from football. But then again, what do you do? I, I knew I wanted to kind of help people, but my family friend got me a, an interview for a role for a learning mentor for disadvantaged children. So I went and did that. And I did that for six years, so trying to help them with their reintegrations back into school. And I always say when I do the talks is that I swapped one environment of getting kicked, racially abused, 
spot at for another one, but I just got paid a lot less, a lot less money to do it. Right. So that was a, another part of my growth and learning. And in that time also, I'd uh, met someone, got married very quickly and then became a dad as well. So within like a calendar year, I did all that. And so eventually it took its toll, right? And 2013, I ended up going off work with man flu. So we know how serious that is. And um, I've been part of a power struggle as well within that, that organization, which I was the person who both parties came and vented to. And I wasn't on anyone's side, but there was a bit of pressure from that. So I went off with, yeah, I wasn't well. And then I was due to come back and I was sat watching TV with my daughter, who I think she was, what old is she now? She'd be five at the time, just coming up to five. And all of a sudden, this wave of emotion just came over me, and I just, tear just started rolling down my, my face, right? And so I was like, well, this is not like the man flu that I've had before. This could be a little bit different. So, but I also I didn't want to cry in front of my daughter, because again, you know, you think about all these stereotypes, you know, again, macho coming from a male dominated arena football where you don't show weakness it's, it's frowned upon so i removed myself from the room and then i just kind of broke down when i got out of the room to my, my wife at the time and then she said well maybe you need to go to the doctors so i, I booked into the doctors but then i was then worried about what the doctor was going to say like what if the doctor said there's nothing wrong with you like just get to work and stop being so soft or stupid. like that's what was going on in my head so then i worried all night about going to the doctor and of course, I got there and, you know, the doctor was fantastic and very compassionate and listened and, and signed me off, which it was just coming into the summer holidays, so that worked out really well. And he put me on some tablets that recommended them, like many people did, you know, doing at that time, I, I really, I, I would have taken anything just to kind of deal with this. Because the thing I say also, it was like having a big slab on my chest that, I, you know, if you're doing the bench press, you just can't. You can't lift anymore. That's how it felt when I hit that moment of, of the, the, emotional, the, the emotional, emotional weight. Yeah, weight was just I. I just felt like I can't, I can't lift this anymore. Like, and I just need help. And managed to get into um, some counselling sessions. Luckily, and this I say this as well in the talks in Leeds, there's eight hundred thousand people. Someone had just either finished the course of sessions or or, or cancelled. So there was a spot that opened up for me. Now, if that hadn't have opened up. I would have had to wait another six weeks to speak to someone. Now, I don't know what would have happened and transpired. And so I was really fortunate, but I, those things kind of happened for me, you know. And so I spent the next few months with kind of really low feelings of depression and then also like little waves of anxiety as well. Like uh, one time in the supermarket, I thought the checkout lady was looking at me and I thought she knew and I was like, she's saying I'm mental and she knows that I'm all messed up and she knows I'm a failure. All these things are going through my mind. And so I just had to ditch the ditch the trolley in the Morrisons, ran home, got under the covers and I stayed there for about a day because I was just petrified, you know, and, and even when I could hear like my wife with it looking after because we have two little kids now. And then I felt guilty because I wasn't helping out. And then the cycle continues. Like you want to go and help, but then you feel bad that you're not. So then you, you, and then you end up staying, you know, in bed. I used to go to counseling sessions thinking that people were going to mug me. So the fight or flight kicks in and you're like, well, I need to go to counseling. So I can't run. I'm going to have to fight. So, I'd like pick the biggest guy in the group and I thought, right, I'll smash him <laughs> first because in my head, I was like, if I nail him, the rest will know that I'm not to be messed with, right? And so, of course, they walk past you and you're just like, oh my 
because like you and then you all the you know derogatory comments about yourself start again you're an idiot you're this of course so interesting and then you get back to some sense of logic but then two minutes later you see another group and you, you go through the same process right and then one day i nearly got knocked over going to counseling somebody came from around the corner and i you know shouted a few obscenities at them because i had my earphones in as well because you know that's the universal cycle don't talk to me isn't it now like if you nobody speaks leave me alone yeah (laughs) and so in that moment i thought to myself this is how my mind went i was like oh well that was close like i could have got knocked down and then i was like well i could have maybe broke my leg broke my pelvis might have banged my head had a concussion might have even been in a coma that's why i used to say and then i said might have even died and then the next line was well, that'll be all right because all this will be over. And that's what I said to myself in my head at that moment. Like, dying will be okay because I can't handle this anymore. That's where I was at. Right? And that's when I knew I was like, that's not great. Because also, and some people might be able to relate to this, during this process, I'd even confided in someone that I was struggling with my mental health. Now, their comment to me was, what have you got to be depressed about? Which then made me recoil and go, I'm not speaking about this to anyone again. Now, I chose that person to speak to and maybe that's my decision. So I always say to people, if someone comes to you with that information, maybe don't judge them based on what you can see. Just take them on face value that they're not feeling great. <laughs> just have a, yeah. So Listen, understand. Yeah, and, just yeah. listen, try to understand. And don't try to fix it for them. Just listen because you can't fix it for them because you're you and, and uh, them and then, I was frustrated with people like my, you know, my wife at the time, family members, because they were all trying to help and guide me to what they thought I needed. But actually, because I hadn't told them the full extent of how sad I really was, how could they possibly help me? But yet I was angry and blaming them. I only figured that out after, right? was it that stops you from actually really sharing what was going on with you because your wife is the one who told you to go to the doctors was it just that statement from that person or was it other things playing out well again the identity see i didn't know at this time that a lot of the stuff that was driving my behavior was coming from this loss of identity loss of self-esteem value load of ego kind of behaviors in many ways you don't know these things so your behavior when you look back you go i can understand because you're trying to replace what you've lost in an attempt to rediscover yourself in some way or to fill some void but it cannot possibly be filled so you'll go out drinking you'll go out gambling you'll go do whatever all these other things that you try to do to take the pain away ultimately you have to fill that void so i say to people who are doing all these things maybe you might want to just stop and come back a little bit and look to address what it actually is that's the issue for you because when you find out you're then able to do anything about it i don't think many people don't know what it is that's bothering them so much that's leading them down this path so they can't do anything about it all right so once i kind of hit that that point i then started to kind of speak to people about it but it's a difficult conversation because again all the stigma the beliefs about being a man come into play you know as a man sporting background that environment culture stan colimar when he came out and said it what happened he got ridiculed didn't he, he got absolutely hammered so that's in your head and also i've heard other people say oh you know just just speak to someone someone's there to speak to you and i said that's that's great but if my belief as a man is that this is a weakness 
I'm not going to come and speak about my weakness because my belief is that I'll no longer be a man. <laughs> so the belief is driving my behavior, lack of action to come and talk about it. Because if I do that thing, I'm not masculine. I've, I've lost that identity as a man. So that's why I believe lots of men won't go and speak about it because it's the belief that's driving their behaviors around what it is to be a man. So that's why I say to people, what is it to be a man? Like, what is it? <laughs> right? what's, the, what's, it what's it based on? What, what's it based on? Yeah. A lot of it's about being strong, you know, being brave, being all the, you know, the, the stereotypical things that people say. But while we're saying all that, we're moving away from the other side of our nature that we've got that we try to deny about, you know, we have got that softer side to us, right? About being open, being caring, being loving. But depending on what we've experienced, that's going to drive our behavior to what we believe a man should be based on maybe our fathers, you know, other role models in our life, what we've experienced in our lives. All these beliefs have all built up to either have you behaving that become your habits in a certain way. So I, I say to people, it's not that simple about just talking. You've got to understand why men in particular don't want to talk about it. And now, based on the journey that you've been through, how do you, I guess, how do you define being a man? Sure, but I now know that putting labels on myself or anything causes limitations. Labels cause limits for me because as soon as you say you're this, that, or the other, that's kind of fixed in your, in your mindset. And then, you, again, identity grows around it. And then you have to either live up to that or you have to admit that you're not that. So you have to change it. So as a man for me, would be probably very different than your description of what a, a man would be. I would hope that for me now as a man, that I can be caring, I can be compassionate, uh, I can listen, I can become aware of how I feel and aware of how other people feel. It's all right to be afraid. It's all right to be sad. In fact, I'll be, I can, I will be anything that I need to be based on what's happening in that present moment and that we all play these different roles. So it's hard to really define what a man, woman, whoever should be because in what context? And that's what I always say. It's, it's a very fluid kind of analogy now. But if you don't limit yourself with a label, you can, you're free to be whatever you want, whenever you, you want, right? That's what I've discovered anyway. No, I think that's a, actually really apt definition because for me that also sits in self-awareness and recognizing the fact that depending on the context a different side of me is going to show up if i'm talking about mental health for example a different side of me is going to show up which is going to go against the stereotypical views of being a man but that's me being there for that person i want to show up differently as as a husband as a father as a friend in so many different but that's not me being fake that's me recognizing that I'm multifaceted and therefore I need to give different sides of myself to other people, depending on the situation. However, I also have that understanding of who I am rather than, and I guess it's a very good way you put it is when you previously looked at who you were, it's like football player, life's all together. Why am I feeling this way? That other people, that perception, all those different things mounting up in you, or I'm a man as well, so strong, tough, behave and think a particular way how can i be crying like even when you said like i had to go with my all those different feelings are one view or the other one is actually i don't need to be defined by all of that because those are things that have been put on me just based on society and other people i get to define who i am i get to define how i see myself i get to define how i show up and that's the difference that being able to do that and have that self-awareness makes yeah and so this is then when the things that i speak about now kind of came to light so 
when the I suppose that the point of transformation happened was probably the most painful time in my life, but it was also the springboard to change. So I was doing an NLP practitioner course, one for professionally, but also I think I went for knowing what I know now, I was meant to be there with that person who asked me the question that led to my breakthrough. So I was speaking to the uh, instructor and I'll be forever grateful to, to this lady because we're having a conversation. And then she just said to me, Martin, do you pay your friends and family? Do you pay them? And I was like, what? What? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, by the way you speak about yourself, I'm surprised that any of them would want to be around you or associated with you if you didn't pay them. And in that moment, I knew exactly what she meant. That again, due to the identity, loss of identity, zero esteem or value in myself, was not worthy of people's love because I didn't have it for myself. That's what she was getting at. And in that moment, it was like I had this epiphany where I could have run out of the room and it actually was in like slow motion. I thought, she's got me here. Do you know, like, it was like checkmate. She's got, she's got me. I'm either going to cry my eyes out now or I can run away. And so I said, you either stay. This is a pivotal moment for you. So I stayed and I did cry, but it was a, a moment that gave me a bit of clarity, therefore, that had led to all my behaviours for those last six years, that way of thinking all came down to, in terms for me, was this lack of uh, love and appreciation for myself. And so that was driving all my behaviours, all my thought patterns, all my language, all the ways I was acting, reacting. And then when I realised that, it gave me the springboard to move forward because this is the other thing i say to people as well i've had people call me in those lower times and just ring to see how i was and so you think you'd get off the phone and you'd be quite happy about that i actually would then burst into tears because i realized that they cared about me more than i did about myself so people would call to say oh i was we've not heard from you for a while how are you doing oh, i'm all right get off the phone cry my eyes out because that lack of appreciation for me based on what i could do not who i was was still still there so i started on this process of recovery and, and, and doing the things that i kind of wanted to do and i decided to come off my medication just because i wanted to experience it for real even the pain like i needed to know like i don't even take paracetamols and stuff for me because for headaches because i just i like to people might say it's a bit strange but i'd like to be aware of and I want to know what the feeling is, right? You don't, want, you don't want to numb the pain. Yeah, I want to know because then I can deal with it and move through it. If I'm numbing it all the time, I never get to deal with it, which is what I've been doing as well in various ways, not just with medication. Started on this process, looking after myself, different things. And then I'd get so far and then I'd fall back again. Something had happened and I'd be back in that dark hole again and thinking about, you know, not wanting to be here and stuff. And then I'd progress again and I'd, I'd fall back. And so I think I did it three or four times and it was on the i think the third or fourth fourth time i thought i've had enough of this like i can't but not this time i've had enough i want to die it was like i want to find out what i'm doing because i've been feeling good at times so what is it that and so i was like right i need to assess what i'm doing when i'm feeling good because it, it also occurred to me people very rarely do that because we're just happy we're happy we don't understand why we're happy and i say to people now if you're buzzing Go away and look at what you're doing on a daily basis. I looked at what I was doing. I wrote them down, all the things that I was doing, all the areas that I was covering, and there were 11 things. And so 
And obviously then the links to football, there was 11 things. So I immediately saw this team sheet with these 11 players on a pitch. And then I remember that managers used to say to us before squad numbers, and I had this voice in my head that said, if you win your battles, won't we 11, you win the game. And then I thought about football and how it's very much like life, that you're not always in the ascendancy. Even if you're playing against the team that you're better than, they always have a spell in the game. And I thought about all the games I've played in. There's always a time when you're up against it and you're scrambling to keep the ball out of the net and the crowd shouting at you and all these things. And I said to myself, what do we do in those moments? Well, we got two banks of four, we regroup, we weather the storm, and then we start to move forward again. And I thought, isn't that like what we do in life? What do you do, Martin? I said to myself, when things are going not great for you. And so I was like, right. And then I started to look at these things and then I've started to look at them and develop them. And I thought, this is not just about my mental well-being recovery. These areas that I talk about are universal for everybody in every area of their life. And if they became more aware of them and started looking at them and working on them and, and essentially managing your own one to 11 to, to make sure your players are all playing well, they're going to win the game. So like, that's how it all started to move forward, right? This one to 11 thing. That's where it came from. And that was the origins of it. It came through my own experiences with uh, mental health. Where's the one to 11? What are the 11 things you have in so, Acceptance and responsibility. That's the anchor point of the 1-11. to I say, if you imagine a team sheet, that's the goalkeeper because you've got to have a really good goalkeeper because if you don't, you concede a lot of goals, you're never going to win a game. So acceptance and responsibility because I had to accept the lack of self-appreciation and love, which was the bitterest pill to swallow, but I had to accept it because it was that lack of acceptance from losing my identity that was causing me a lot of problems. But the problem people have with acceptance is Many confuse it with resignation. Resignation is disempowering because it means you can do nothing about the events. And what I do is couple it with responsibility because it then puts me in an empowering state. I can't change what's happened, but I can change what's going to happen next. Also, I played my part in getting to that point of having suicidal thoughts unknowingly, but I had to take responsibility for those things. That put me in a place of empowerment to move forward. And so that's why I say to people, if you think of anything that everybody gets stuck with in life, there's a lack of acceptance from it because I believe that their version or interpretation of acceptance is one of giving up and just letting people run all over with you. It's enabling you to let that thing come to you, be able to be okay about it, understand what you're going to do moving forward, put that thing down and then move forward. And that's for me what I've learned through acceptance. That was the starting point of my transformation. And without it, Nobody ever gets to change anything in their life. And I've, I've looked at lots of people and worked with people and seen things. It always comes down to a lack of acceptance. Then we've got communication. As I said earlier, the ability to communicate, but not only with other people, how are we communicating with ourselves so that everything carries you know, an energy signature, has an effect on us, even our thoughts, right? So a negative thought actually affects you, physically weakens you. They've done tests on this sort of stuff. There's a guy called Dr. David R. Hawkins who's done loads of work on this. So even the words that we use, the words that we think about ourselves can either strengthen or weaken us. So there's this conversation and communication with ourselves is really, really important. It's not just saying our oh, positive talking. It's for people to understand why positive words and the meaning that we give to the words have a great effect on us. And the same is happens with the, the negative kind of terms. With communication came support. 
but I had to understand what kind of support have I got around me? Are they the right people? So, for example, the person I went to when I confessed to being depressed was not the right person to have in my support group because they weren't going to help me move forward. So having an understanding that we all need support to be successful, not one of us can do anything on our own, right? So there was that element. But also, for the individual, what are we doing to support ourselves? If I'd have known what I was doing, I wouldn't have done half the stuff I did along that six-year journey to end up where I ended up, but it was necessary to, to get there. So then there was values and beliefs. We've all got different values that and a system of values that we live within. The problem we have is my values might be different to yours. That's where judgment comes from. I'll criticize you, Sophie, if you're not doing what I do the way that I do it. So it's but many people don't know what their true highest value is. So therefore we can't live authentically to it because we don't know. So I say to people, you've got to go figure out what values are key to you as an individual. But then don't put them on someone else, just live them for you. Beliefs, as we talked about, that blank canvas that you get painted on and becomes your story. Those beliefs drive you. So can you change those beliefs? Yes, you can. Because a belief is just an idea that you've heard often enough till it becomes hardwired. Then there was, I didn't have any goals. Didn't have any direction in life after football. Anything that filled me with a little bit of passion. So we're just drifting. But with goals, you need plan a structure because how do you know where you're going to go so that was the next part then i thought consistency and discipline we're all consistent and disciplined and those yield our results now we're all consistent and disciplined in different ways aren't we and those are our habits and so discipline's got a negative connotation for many people i've been disciplined or you know you get a disciplinary but if you saw discipline as a it's that long-term gratification Discipline's a form of self-love if you can approach it that way. So if you can be consistent and disciplined in a certain way, you're going to change your life based on what you're doing now, right? you just got to look at your habits. But that's only underpinned by commitment and intention. Once my commitment was that I was never going to feel like that again, and that drive to, like the commitment to go be a footballer, for example, I'm doing this, I'm doing it, I'm not, it doesn't matter what's happening, I'm, I'm doing this. That's the same commitment that I've had on this mental health recovery journey since I made that transition that underpinned this commitment to continue to do the things that I do and think the way that I think and challenge myself on a daily basis. That's commitment and that's what I have to have because I say to people, I could go back to those depths pretty easy if I stopped doing what I'm doing. It's in me. I know it is and I can, not a problem, but that's what drives me on to not go back there. Then there was the element of time. Time is this thing that runs our lives and like we're either investing time in yourself, you're either spending time intentionally with people, doing things you love, or you're wasting a lot of time. And how many of us waste a lot of time, right? Whether that's getting involved in things that don't concern us, scrolling through social media, comparing ourselves to everyone else. This amount, this time is this thing because again, as we are now, time's finite for us, isn't it? In our experience on earth, we know it's finite. So there's the pressure. So this time thing's a big deal for everyone, but time also is not even a real thing. It's just, it's made up for us to live our lives. But the presence of being in the moment is where you're always okay. And then I understood that my depression came from the past and my anxieties came from the future. I'm not a footballer anymore. What am I going to do in the future? It was never now. So I always say to people as well, in terms of time, just observe how much your mind wanders in a day 
even in the first 20, 20 minutes when you get up, you'll think of all things you've got to do in the day or you'll be worried about what happened last night or something that happened to you 10 years ago. And you, we break them. So we're constantly back and forward. And that's the ego's need to stay alive and be relevant. It cannot survive in the here and now because it's got nothing to do, right? And so time was like the other element. And then the last one was gratitude, right? I didn't understand gratitude at first. I didn't understand the physiological changes it makes to me. But just the process of being grateful for the simplest things is a massive way to change the way you feel about yourself and life and your relationship with life. We take so much for granted, especially where we, you know, in the country we live in, we're really lucky. We don't think we're lucky because everybody moans all the time about all the stuff. We are. Yeah. <laughs> My God, if people really realised how lucky and we are just to have what we even just to have your health, if you're lucky enough to have that. But because we take things for granted, we don't use gratitude. And that's it's something I'm seeing less and less in life in terms of the ego always wants and it can't help itself. So we'll chase the next thing. We'll get that, but we won't be grateful while we're doing it or appreciate the journey. We just want that thing. And then when we get it, it's all right for about a minute. And then it doesn't satisfy us anymore. So we go after the the next thing and that's the culture we're in now where everybody's chasing all this stuff outside of themselves looking for acceptance looking for recognition they're comparing themselves they want to be better than other people to say that they're better and that's the epidemic of our society right now that's the mental health epidemic we've got going on is that the ego is driving all these behaviors that we've got where people are seeing all the differences they're being horrible to each other. They, they think if one person does well, they can't do well. They, they don't celebrate people's success. It's all competitive-based, being honest. If you get your fair, then that means I can't have. So now I don't like you anymore because you've got something I want that's going to make me happy. But actually, what you've got probably won't make me happy. But I don't know that, but I'll still chase it, right? That is insanity for what where we're at right now. So you can't fill the void outside yourself. I know that for experience, you can only fix it from within. And that's where we're missing the point, you know, because we can set up all these things and we can focus attention onto it, which is it's absolutely essential that we bring all these things into the light. But my thing is then, but what now? What is the next step? Because I don't think we're giving people anything tangible that they can go away and think about to look at, become self-aware and have an awareness of self. Those are two different things. And that's where I'm like, there's loads of topics that have come up now, but we've still got to look at the individual, our own obligation and responsibilities to ourselves and then to others. And I think that that's what's missing. You know, you, you take, for example, in a workplace around mental health, someone will say, I'll say, well, uh, sure, he's got depression. Well, I saw him yesterday. He was happy. He was laughing. He can't have depression. That's the kind of stuff that we need to address because there's a lack of understanding from me that you could well be suffering with feelings of depression. And just because you were happy yesterday doesn't mean that you're going to be happy today. And so that's the stuff that gets discredited. Do you know what I mean? That's the lack of understanding that people haven't. And also for people who potentially are suffering, I found there was this difficulty. And when I started to feel better, I kind of was worried about feeling better. 
because people knew I'd been suffering with depression and anxiety. What if I appeared to be all right that day? They might think I'm lying. That's what I used to think in my head. If I'm happy today, they're going to think, but I've told people that I've got feelings, they're going to think that I'm lying. So there's a challenge there for people to then start to move towards recovery because people are judging you based on a lack of knowledge. So I'm thinking about what you just share right now. I'm thinking about, I was thinking about the framework and that you've created the 1 to 11 and how that flows into so many different areas. I think I saw you shared it previously, but actually listening to your journey and how you got to this space, how you got to create this and how you had to experience certain things to be able to create this makes it come alive so much more. And I guess when we're talking around what is support communication or the values that we have internally or people have a, as a wider spec, if you're looking at organizations and those areas as well as like discipline, commitment, consistency, gratitude, all of that, all of those things, if we embody them and we look at them both on a personal level and then look at the professional level, they play out on such a bigger, massive, wider scale. So really like appreciate you sharing that journey behind creating this. And it's one thing that comes to mind is two things actually. There's one, what do you want to see happen with the framework that you've created? I have this vision where someone one day, me and you might be talking, and I'll say, sure, pay God, I'm struggling with this, and then I'll, I'll be talking about a situation. And you say, Martin, why don't you just want to 11 it? And I'll go, what? What's that? And then you'll tell me, or I'll know about it, and I'll go, oh, yeah, I will. And I'll go look at that area where the issue I've got, there's the problem, and I know that that's the thing that I need to go away and work on. So, for instance, it could be communication. I've had a big argument with my partner. Why don't you just want to 11 it more? And what, what do you think the issues are? Well, oh, actually, communication, yeah. I was, I didn't listen. I was shocked. My ego got in the way. I couldn't accept that, you know, that was said to me. I didn't take responsibility for my actions. Imagine if, like what you said, if we help the individual to become aware and change, we change the collective we change the environment within cultures, within businesses, within schools, within families, because the individual has an awareness of these areas that are universal and ever-present. I didn't create them. They are just there, but I don't think there's a focus on them for how each individual uses them. And so if we could create that, we could create some real amazing change that's not a difficult concept to kind of understand once you, you've had it explained to you or been taught it. You can start to look at it. And so I use it every day. Every, you know, I put a video on yesterday. Do people get you mad or angry or do you get angry with people? And so I've had to work on that for a long time because people are just people. I make a decision as to whether I get angry with them. Now, there's me accepting that and taking responsibility for my feelings, not putting it onto the person who's acting in the way that they're acting based with the skills that they've got. question I ask my guests is leadership. You've obviously been coached by other people. You've been in leadership positions yourself. How do you define leadership? I think, as you said, didn't you, before, leadership is um, lead yourself first. I think it's that, again, it's that assessment of yourself. How are you performing before you go and speak to other people about how they're performing? And also, what kind of leader? Are you someone who tells people what to do or are you someone who 
shows them by how you are. And so I would say that leadership is about having awareness of self first. What's your leadership? What's your impact on other people? Because you'll know, if you're aware, you'll know. Do people follow you and do what you want because they're frightened of you or because they respect and love you and want to follow you? Because we used to have managers who we didn't really like, but then we had managers who we'd have run through a brick wall for. No questions asked. Do I want to be someone who's a leader who tells people and shouts at them all the time? Or do I want to have that respect that comes from within and the way you treat people? There's a saying about power versus force. And I would say that force is trying to get people to do what you want them to do. And power is where you don't have to do anything and they just do it anyway. And so maybe some leaders could start to look at that. Are they coming from power or are they coming from force? So true. And um, how can people find out more about you, the work you do, the one to eleven? Yeah, well, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn as we met on there. Uh, my email is pembo one two eleven, so number one with the word two eleven at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at pem one two eleven, and basically, you know, for me, it's just about coming and speaking to people about mental well being and talking about the importance of that, not just at work, because as we talked earlier off camera about leaders away from business employees away from work it's not just about well-being at work work-life balance to me doesn't exist because i'm putting a discrepancy in between my work and my life and then i'm saying work's crap and so i don't want that in my life when actually it's just a life balance work is just a part of that so my role is to want to go in and speak to people to spark a little bit of thought maybe that's where the change occurs and then we can have cultures organizations that are coming from those places of gratitude compassion respect understanding communication which then helps everybody progress and so those trainings that i do address the one to eleven both for the individual but then it can also be used and transferred into the culture or the organization and i believe that if people it's my belief if, if people knew more about this and started to address this we change quite a lot of things in society and in businesses that's what we're trying to do that's, that's what the whole focus on shining light on crucial important areas especially after the year that we've had that is so is so necessary we want people to be happy don't we yeah we do we definitely do and i appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story all your information the show notes the information how to get a hold of martin is all going to be available as well so people can get involved and learn more about yeah. the ones in there. Thank you. No, thanks for having me on because, you know, you listen to me rabbit on for quite a while there without saying anything. So I appreciate you giving me the time. It's, it's really, really important. Thank the, you. Story was, the story was gripping. Yeah. So I was, I was <laughs> in it. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going to fall back. You know, I just, I just yeah, listened to well, this. So. You know, when I go to speak to people, I just give it as real as I can because it's got to resonate and there's only you can only resonate through authenticity I, I don't tell any lies I give my experience of what it was like for me in that time of mental health but I also want to give people something tangible that they can take and work with straight out of the gate that could help them to change their mental health that's my goal right if we can create more self-reliant happier people then it's incredible what we would do going through that process I don't regret it any of it because actually without it I wouldn't be where I'm at and the 1 to 11 wouldn't have got created if I'd have gone through that mental health experience brilliant All right, my thank friends. you very much Martin this is Everyday Leadership and we'll see you next week bye